over to the letter to the Colossians. The letter to the Colossians, we've been working through this letter uh, over the past couple months as a church, and this is going to be our final sermon on it, actually. And so when you get to the letter to the Colossians, turn over to uh, the big number four. That's the chapter four in the letter to the Colossians. Then here's a twist. Put a bookmark there and turn a couple pages to the right and go to the letter to Philemon. The letter to Philemon, okay? That's, uh, we're going to start there uh, this morning, okay? Um, so if you're just joining us, we've been working through the letter to the Colossians together for the past few months, like I said. Last week, Dave mentioned that we were going to do one more sermon on this letter to the Colossians. And if you read ahead, if you read ahead a little bit, that may have seemed strange to you, because the only thing left really in this letter um, <laughs> is Paul's mention of who's with him, who he's hanging out with and maybe a, a couple minor instructions to the church back in Colossae, okay? Nothing in this last part seems all that theological in, in this letter. The, the conclusion, not very theological at all, it seems. But, but this highlights something that it's crucial to keep in mind about Paul's letters, actually. Um, they're, they're letters. They're, they're not just theology written for theology's sake. They're, they're letters. They're they're, they're Discourse sent to specific and real people about specific and real things. They're letters. And so uh, all of Paul's letters, with probably the exception to Romans and Ephesians, uh, they're written to help people relate to one another and to the world. So you could say that Paul's theology isn't just theology. He's not just talking about God to talk about God. He's talking about theology as it applies to relationships between people and the world. And so you could call it a relationally applied theology of sorts, okay? And I've had you turn over to the letter of Philemon this morning because there's a, there's a very specific situation that's at play in the delivery of this letter to the Colossian church, okay? Uh, Paul wrote these two letters at the very same time, okay? They're, and they were to be delivered at the same time. Philemon was actually one of the prominent members of the Colossian church. The church met in his house. The church met in Philemon's house. It met in his home. And so he got a special letter from Paul because he had a contentious history with the person who was bringing the letters to town. Okay? The one delivering the letter, his name was Onesimus. This was a common uh, name for a slave in the first century. Onesimus is just the old Greek way of saying useful. So his name meant useful. Uh, slaves who were born into slavery in the first century often carried the name Onesimus, male and female. Okay, so Onesimus here is showing up with this letter. And <laughs> here's the thing. He wasn't just any slave. He was a runaway slave. And his master that he had run away from was none other than Philemon this prominent member of the Colossian church who hosted the church in his home. And so, so the nature of their relationship is actually that which colors the backdrop of Colossians chapter 4 for us. And so we're going to unpack it today. This is what we're going to do, okay? We're going to look at this relationship between Onesimus and Philemon, okay? And then we're going to see how it helps us understand what Paul has to say in Colossians 4, how we're to operate in the world, and then we're going to see how it helps us ultimately understand our relationship with Jesus, okay? All right. So the, the way that I really want to do that is when we look at this letter to Philemon, 
we can really begin to reconstruct the whole situation that was at play here, uh, that, that Paul is trying to mend this relationship between Philemon and his runaway slave, okay? So let's actually, we're just going to read this letter together, okay? The letter to, uh, of Paul to Philemon, okay? So buckle up, this is just going to take about two minutes. It's going to be great, too. Okay. Paul, a prisoner for Christ Jesus and Timothy, our brother. To Philemon, our beloved fellow worker, and Apha, Apphia, our sister, and Archippus, our fellow soldier, and the church in your house. Grace to you and, and peace from God our Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. I thank my God always when I remember you in my prayers, because I hear of your love and of the faith that you have towards the Lord Jesus and for all the saints. And I pray that the sharing of your faith may become effective for the full knowledge of every good thing that is in us for the sake of Christ. For I have derived much joy and comfort from your love, my brother, because the hearts of the saints have been refreshed through you. Refreshed through you. That's a key point there. Accordingly, though, I am bold enough in Christ to command you to do what is required. Yikes. Yet for love's sake, I prefer to appeal to you. I, Paul, as an old man and now a prisoner also for Christ Jesus, I appeal to you for my child, Anisimus whose father I became in my imprisonment. Formerly he was useless to you, but now he is indeed useful to you and to me. A play on Anisimus' name. I'm sending him back to you, sending my very heart. I would have been glad to keep him with me in order that he might serve me on your behalf during my imprisonment for the gospel, but I preferred to do nothing without your consent in order that your goodness might not be that your goodness might not be by compulsion, but out of your own accord. And this, perhaps, is why he was parted from you for a while, that you might have him back forever, no longer as a bondservant, but more than a bondservant, as a beloved brother, especially to me, but how much more to you, both in the flesh and in the Lord. So if you consider me your partner, receive him as you would receive me. If he has wronged you at all or owes you anything, charge that to my account. I, Paul, write this with my own hand. I will repay it to say nothing of your owing me, even your own self. Yes, brother, I want some benefit from you in the Lord. Refresh, there's that word again, my heart in Christ. Confident of your obedience, I write to you, knowing that you will do even more than I say. At the same time, prepare a guest room for me. I'm hoping that through your prayers, I will be graciously given to you. Epaphras, that's the person who started the Colossian church. My fellow prisoner in Christ Jesus sends greetings to you, and so do Mark, Aristarchus, Demas, and Luke, my fellow workers. The grace of the Lord Jesus Christ be with you. Be with your spirit. All right, what a letter. What a letter. We have a letter that is meant to guide a relationship between Philemon, a master, and his runaway slave. And so let's begin to reconstruct what this relationship looked like, okay? Um, well, first, it appears that Anisimus was a slave. We get that from his name, and we also get that piece of information from verse 16. Paul says there that he hoped Anisimus would be no longer just a slave to Philemon, as if that is, in fact, what he had been. And now we have to understand the nature of slavery in the first century New Testament world a little bit. Um, because when we conceive of slavery with our uh, 21st century mind, it's just natural for us to go back to the expression of it in America, the 17th and 18th century of the United States. But, but this would probably misrepresent Philemon's relationship with Anisimus a little bit. 
Um, because being a slave in the New Testament world, it, it didn't mean that Onesimus was of any particular race. It didn't mean that he had any particular job. Um, it didn't mean that he was in any particular minority whatsoever. Um, because in, in Hellenistic cities of the day, it seemed that the majority of the working population was actually a slave, that they were actually indentured servants of some kind. So, so this term slave doesn't tell us much about who Onesimus actually was. He could have been a kind of professional, as many teachers, engineers, even doctors carried the title of slave in, in that day and age, okay? But he was clearly a slave. He was an indentured employee of some kind. And it seems from the whole tone of this letter, especially from verse 14 there, that he had been a slave of Philemon's. And second, we see that Paul wants Philemon to take Onesimus back as a servant, to retain his servants once again. So he sends Philemon, or so Paul sends Onesimus back to Philemon, though no longer as a mere slave, he says, but also as a brother. He alludes to the fact that something had gone wrong between Onesimus and Philemon. That's a big thing. <laughs> it seems that in verse 11, Onesimus had become useless to Philemon. Some, something happened. And in verse 14, the strange part about this is it seems that for Onesimus to continue on with Paul, it wouldn't have had Philemon's consent or permission. Even if Paul wanted Onesimus to stay with him, he felt that this would be something Philemon must agree to, must get on board with. So throughout the letter, it seems as if the separation from Onesimus and from, uh, of a, Onesimus from Philemon, um, it needed some explaining. In verse 18, it becomes very, very clear. Paul mentions that Onesimus may owe some kind of debt now to Philemon as well. He doesn't get any more specific on what that debt actually is, but it seems likely that this wrong was specifically tied to an escape of sorts. It seems that Onesimus was away from Philemon, absent his consent. And, and many have speculated that from verse 18, what really happened is that Onesimus had actually stolen something from Philemon. Here we have a slave stealing something from his master. And then in fear of retribution or of justice, he ran away. He escaped and fled. Whatever the reason, it seems that Onesimus had left Philemon in a bad way in a bad way. And after he left, he ended up with Paul. Somehow he finds Paul in prison in Rome. And it seems that in Paul's company, Onesimus had become useful again. More than that, Onesimus apparently became a Christian. Paul refers to him very dearly. My child. He became my child in imprisonment. He became a Christian. And it seems Paul and Onesimus then became pretty close became even dear. He talks about him really sweetly throughout this letter, actually. Someone his heart had become attached to. And then very tenderly, in verse 12, he refers to him as my very heart. It becomes clear that as part of his conversion, though, that Onesimus would have to deal with the wrong that he had done to Philemon. Very strange. Sometimes you hear about this, who uh, people who become Christians, they become Christians, and part of the Holy Spirit working in their lives is a reflection on the wrong they had done even before they were a Christian, and either by writing letters or, or calling or, or paying, making payments back to people who they'd wronged in the past, they, they're encouraged to make amends. Something like this seems to be happening here in this letter. You need to address the wrongs he had done. 
And so even if Philemon were to free him from his service when he returned, and we're not sure if that's something Onesimus would have even wanted, it's very likely that Onesimus would have needed an economic station to continue to be employed in when he got back to Colossae. It probably would have been difficult for him to find work somewhere else under another master with this, <laughs> this, this kind of a persona of being someone who stole or wronged his masters. But even if Philemon would have freed him, it seems that Onesimus still had to make restitution for whatever wrongs were, that had caused him to flee. So there was Onesimus turning up in Colossae, bearing this letter. There he stood, picture it, on Philemon's doorstep, the doorstep of the very church, in need of forgiveness, in need of being welcomed back into Philemon's household again, in need of his service, in need of his good graces, a relationship that needed complete restoring. And Onesimus turned up in direct need of Philemon's forgiveness. And there's just this awkward manner of restitution between them. What was Onesimus to do? He had apparently stolen from Philemon, but he didn't have the wherewithal to pay it back, to make it good. Certainly he had had stolen the labor of his absence, but apparently money or goods or something else. Stood in need of making this financial repayment he didn't have the means to make. And while it wasn't necessarily as brutal as the New World slavery, this version of slavery back then, a master still could be very, very cruel to their slaves if they wanted to be. There was no penalty for anything a master did to those whom they owned. Now, in slaves, they would occupy almost any job, so they blended into society really well. In fact, the, the Senate back then, even in Rome, they were like, maybe we should make all the slaves wear clothing so we, knew, we know who's who. They decided against it because they realized, wait, if they all realize how many of them there are, they may raise up in revolt against us. Anisimus shows up and he deserved debtor's prison or worse, the cruelty of his master. But Paul, this is what's so fascinating about this situation. After likening Anisimus to his very own heart, owning him in that way, he looks to Philemon and in verse 20, he says, I know that you have a history and a reputation for refreshing people, caring for them, being hospitable to them. You do that, refresh my heart in Christ. And his heart referring to Onesimus, it seems. This combined with Paul's petition for just Philemon's uh, (laughs) to to receive him or welcome him carries with it a full weight of hospitable care. So Philemon's forgiveness is actually to extend further than forgiving a physical debt of chickens or chinaware or whatever it is, but actually to the loving, affectionate care of this new Christian Onesimus, comprehensive forgiveness, we could call it. And Paul concludes this letter by being really pushy about it. It's kind of subtle, but it's definitely there. Did you see it there in verse? Verse 22 really functions as a kind of P.S. Oh, by the way, Philemon, I hope to come visit you. Make a room up for me. I'm going to come in and I'm going to check up on you to see if you are actually doing this. Now, Paul's in prison, actually. He doesn't know when he's going to get let out. But he's, going to, he's letting Philemon know that I'm going to check up on you in this, whether it be from people who come back or me coming there in person. You better be known to have welcomed and refreshed my very heart, my very brother, my very child, Anisimus, into your home. 
So there was Onesimus, the slave who stole, then fled, found Paul by finding Paul, found Christ, and away back home. There he was, after leaving Paul, back on the doorstep of his former master with a letter in hand, complete need of forgiveness. Can you imagine the destitution of a man like that at the complete mercy of the person of of Philemon? Acknowledging his need, not just for forgiveness, but probably an economic station in the city. He's a picture of somebody needing forgiveness. Now, now consider Philemon standing there reading the letter. Paul made it clear that Onesimus needed the things that Philemon was to supply, this welcoming, this refreshing. This meant that Philemon was going to need to trust Onesimus again in some very practical ways. Should he count the spoons and forks each night before he goes to bed for he to welcome Onesimus back into his home? Does he count the change that Onesimus should have gotten from the marketplace? And this is what's interesting. Paul doesn't just say, forgive and forget. Forgive and forget. He acknowledges that there's an inde- a genuine indebtedness between the two here. I mean, for forg- but for, for, for Philemon to forgive Onesimus... It meant somehow resolving this indebtedness, even if it meant transferring it to Paul. Paul says, I'll take care of this. The issues aren't just swept under the carpet, you see that? Real forgiveness never just sweeps issues under the carpet. There's always an accounting for the debt. This is comprehensive forgiveness. Philemon could not begrudgingly just forgive Onesimus. To forgive Onesimus didn't just mean forgiving a debt welcoming him back into his home, even begrudgingly, but welcoming him, welcoming him back into his heart. So Paul here, he's petitioning for a radical forgiveness across social strata. In the ancient world, uh, forgiveness was not an honorable quality at all. You know, here in America, we're, we're brought up and, and forgiveness is valued, it's praised. We're, we're taught to forgive at a very young age, you know. There's that famous M- Michelle Obama quote, when they go low, we go high, it kind of implies forgiveness. And we applaud, you know, we love forgiveness in our culture. It's very valued, but not then. Forgiveness wasn't a value of that culture. Forgiveness in that culture meant that's a person that can be taken advantage of. It was to show significant weakness. That's how Philemon would have been raised. And to show forgiveness to his slaves, probably, maybe, could have incurred shame from other fellow masters in the city. Taking this guy back? Are you kidding me? Sacrificially forgive a slave? That's to suggest that they're equal to us. And this isn't the first time we see this in the Bible. It's actually a beautiful recurring narrative that happens again and again and again. And I'm not sure if the Apostle Paul imagined this or or meant to do this, but here it seems we have a dramatization of the large themes of the prodigal son right here in the book of Philemon. Between, in this relationship, we have a, a dramatization of the prodigal son. Do you see this? We have a slave who's returning to his master's house after stealing from him and being unable to pay, just like the son who took his father's fortune early, squandered it, then repented and returned. And what's the attitude that Paul is calling Philemon to? The attitude of that of the father. Not a begrudging forgiveness, but one that'll throw his arms around Onesimus, welcome him into his home again, to continue to care for him and love him sacrificially. That's what's going on here. It's it's fascinating. 
Paul's asking for nothing short of Philemon to slaughter the fattened calf, prepare it for Anisimus. And I think that Paul suggesting that he would pay for this debt is a little bit of pretense here. I mean, what is Philemon going to do? Is he going to write an invoice to the imprisoned Apostle Paul in Rome saying, uh, hey, uh, you owe me for the, my, my, my chinaware or my chickens or whatever was stolen? I don't think so. I mean, would you do that? I don't think so. <laughs> I think Philemon understood very clearly that he was to take a loss here. He was to take a loss here just as Christ took a loss for him so that he could be welcomed back home. The whole situation is meant to remind Philemon of the great forgiveness and accepting love that he'd received from God through Christ and extend it to his rebellious and wayward slave that had come home. And so to be sure, I mean, the inequality of the first century social construct of slaves and masters, this was a dilemma to Paul. And it's one that he eagerly anticipated dissolution of. Recall back to Colossians chapter 3, verse 11, where, where he talked about how there is neither slave nor free in Christ. That, that, that is done away with. It is eliminated altogether. And here in this relationship, what we see, though, is it's eliminated in a very, very interesting way, a counterintuitive way, even perhaps to us. How is it eliminated? Well, the radical forgiveness and equality that Paul comes just short of demanding from Philemon here, it's really a demand, you know, I mean, come on. It did not come about by telling Philemon that Anisimus is no longer his slave and that Anisimus should be considered on the same level of a master. Instead, he looks at Philemon and he says, you're a slave, Philemon. You're actually just like Anisimus. He radically speaks to Philemon's position, and he reminds Philemon that he is to um, reflect the very nature of God and Jesus Christ being his master to his, those who are under him. Now, now, this is truly revolutionary. This shook the ancient world. In, in three short centuries, the entire notion of slavery would be completely turned on its head in the Roman world, completely. If you, if you want to read a good discussion on that, there's a great one in a, a little book called The Rise of Christianity by Rodney Stark. It, it's actually a secular work. It was, one that, it was a work that Rodney Stark wrote before he became a Christian. You should buy that book. It's incredible. Because eventually, I guess, your, your friends are going to ask you, what about Christianity in the first century? But, oh, this is what it looked like. Revolutionized the, the, the first century. Slavery gets flipped over on its head. It's remarkable. This idea of Christians appropriately conceiving of themselves as slaves to the perfect master of Jesus, experiencing his sacrificial forgiveness, experiencing that and experiencing his hospitable care, and then turning it to others is what Paul hopes his listeners of his letter to the Colossians will walk away with at the end. Okay, so turn back to Colossians where you have that bookmark in, okay? Turn over. We have a very interesting chapter break here at, at chapter 4. <clears throat> Paul's in kind of mid-sentence, but we have a chapter break here because slave language is actually that which dominates the rest of chapter 4 for us. Okay, and it starts like this. Masters, treat your bondservants justly and fairly, knowing that you also have a master in heaven. What does this mean? You see, without the relational story that's taking place in Colossae, 
we, we, we skip over this. We say, masters, slaves, that's, that's not a thing anymore today. We just skip over this. We keep on reading. But with this story, now we're ready to actually apply this to our own lives. Masters, that's any of you who have someone who works for you, who reports for you, home or work. Take it from the bottom. Start at home. This is, this is babysitters. This is nannies. This is housekeepers, if you pay someone to come in and, and take care of your house, is anybody you pay to come in and fix your house, anybody who you pay to do work for you, you're their master in a way. Now go to work. Anyone lower than you on the totem pole? For those of you who work in, in, in the restaurant industry, this goes all the way down to, to, to dishwashers. I did that for seven years, you know? Lots of dishwashers came in. You know? Interns, administrative assistants, your teammates, anyone who is below you, are you treating them as your master in heaven treats you? Do you sacrificially forgive them when they mess up? Moreover, are you going out of your way to be hospitably caring for them in a way that Jesus did that costs you something? It costs Philemon something. There is, he took a hit to forgive and welcome again. Are you doing that for your, anybody who's under you and reporting to you? But Anisimus was a Christian, we say. And so Paul was asking Philemon to care for, Christian, for a Christian brother. This is different. If I care for my workers like this, they're going to take advantage of me. This is going to cost you something. I'm not going to look as good if I'm always forgiving my coworkers. If I'm always trying to build them up, I'm actually not going to look as good. This is going to take a lot of energy. I'm not going to get to my own work. Exactly. Now you're feeling the scandal of the gospel of Jesus. That is the very scandal of the gospel of Jesus. You're very close to dramatizing it yourself in your life. You took advantage of the grace of Christ. And what did it cost him? His life. His life. And now it's our opportunity to do likewise. Paul makes the statement here in verse 1 without any conditions. And that's precisely what makes it so beautiful. It's beautiful. My, my mom actually became a Christian when I was three years old. At a church that met in a middle school. Uh, so I have a special love for this place. Um, and she's also, my mom's also a high-powered executive. Uh, presently, she's CEO of a company with over half a billion dollars in revenue. And at one point in her career, she stepped in to lead this, this large international insurance company. It was headed to the toilet, but she turned it around. Um, but I'll never forget one of the stories that she brought home uh, from work. Um, she had an accountant, okay? And this accountant, he kept on messing up, okay? Over and over again, he couldn't do his job right. And do you know what my mom and her new redeemed self did? She called him into her office. She said, Mike. I don't know if that was his name. I forget his name. I feel like Mike wouldn't be good at math. I'm sorry if your name is Mike. <laughs> if your name's Mike and you're good at math, I'm, I'm so sorry. But she said, Mike, we have a problem here. You are an accountant for this company, but you're not an accountant. You're not good at this job. I think someone may have said that to Dave one, at one point in time. I don't know. You're not good at this job. You can't do it well. 
So this is what we're going to do. We're going to pull together a resume for you, and over the course of the next three months, I'm going to help you apply to jobs, put cover letters together for you, give you letters of recommendations, and we're going to find you a job so that you and your family does not miss a paycheck. That's crazy. And she did help him find a job. And he was incredibly grateful to her. And they're still friends to this day. That's revolutionary. What does anybody else do in that position? You put out a job, you ask for job applications, you hire in the background, you fire, replace. Not my mom. She, put her, she took on this project on her shoulders as well. She didn't need this on top of trying to, to take this insurance company out from going to the gutter, which is where I was going. She spent time applying with him to jobs. She put up with a bad accountant for a little bit longer. And then when he got a new job, she scrambled to find someone to fill it instead of having a smooth transition. That's, you see that? That's sacrificial love. That's a love of the gospel that opens doors for us to proclaim the message. This is one of the main ways that doors are open is through the sacrificial love. You know, sometimes uh, I hear a lot of people saying we need to preach the gospel uh, with our actions, and this is actually how we do it. If we want to preach the gospel with our actions, in tandem with doing it with our words, there's got to be a cost. That's the gospel. The gospel came at a huge cost to Jesus. And so if we're going to preach it with our actions, it's not just being nice. It's not just uh, being forgiving in, in a general sense. It's the cost of hospitable, loving care. That's what preaching the gospel with our actions is. And they fl- it flings doors open. It just flings them open. Now, also, the opposite is true, okay? The opposite is true. A lot's at stake here. When, when Christians fail to grasp this aspect of gospel life, doors, they remain closed. And then they get locked. Um, I was talking to somebody a few weeks ago, a Christian, about what God was calling them to in their workplace, and eventually they just voiced this intense frustration. They said that the old CEO, he was a Christian, but he was an arrogant jerk. He was an arrogant jerk, and as a result, he actually ended up describing his old CEO with this moniker, the anti-witness. He said, as I try to share Christ with my coworkers, I keep on butting up against this anti-witness time and time again. Couldn't open up doors. They had been locked. Here's the kicker. That CEO had left a long time ago. You see, this is what non-Christians find completely unbelievable about the gospel of Jesus. The thing that really hangs them up. The thing that really hangs them up. What they find unbelievable about the gospel is the fact that Jesus' followers might embrace it with their lips, but deny it with their lives. That's an unbelievable message. That's unbelievable. So perhaps for some of you who are here today, this has been your sticking point about Christianity. And I'm so sorry that's been your experience. I get that. But here's what's incredible about the gospel. It doesn't just function to invite people to Jesus Christ in a relationship with him, but it functions as that which continually corrects the, the people of God to keep them loving and sacrificially sacrificing for all the world, anybody who they come into contact with. Great acts of oppression and equality have been committed by Christians. I'm not going to argue that this morning. But the way forward is to use the gospel to expose those actions, to expose those movements, call them what they are, sinful, 
and learning from their mistakes to seek to be a true expression of the gospel ourselves, like what Paul asked of Philemon. It's not quite grounds for dismissing church altogether. Give us another shot. That's my plea to you. Uh, Let me give you a for instance. Say we had a a crude and amoral president of the United States. Just say that 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 happened. That's true. Let's just say that happened. If we were to experience that expression of a leader, we wouldn't conclude that we should do away with democracy altogether, would we? No, we'd just conclude that, hey, let's do away with that expression of a leader, perhaps. Let's just do away with that embarrassing expression of, of a leader. And so that, that's really what we're talking about here. The gospel, what it does is it seeks to remove or correct embarrassing expressions of Christianity that have become the anti-witness, that are oppressive, that, that have done awful things in the name of Jesus, to the true love of Jesus Christ. Okay. To recap, what have we said so far? Paul, working from the gospel, he provides a revolutionary concept for his time. And it's still revolutionary. It's still revolutionary for our time. That masters are to treat those under them with sacrificial, radical sacrificial forgiveness, radical care, our example, our master in heaven, Jesus Christ. And, and now this is going to take some work on your part, okay? This is going to take some work. This week what you have to do is you have to list out everybody who's been entrusted to your care. Each and every person. You have to list them out. And then you have to creatively think how you might sacrificially, hospitably care for them. What would that look like for the interns in your workplace, for your coworkers who report to you? What might that look like in a way that costs you something? Remember, that's the key. In a way that would cost you something. All right, well, what's next? Okay. Well, continuing off verse one, Paul carries the slave and master language throughout the rest of the chapter. Why does he do that? Because the way that his listeners can correctly apply everything in the letter is that they aptly conceive of their relationship to Jesus Christ as their master. Without that understanding, none of this works. None of it will work. Now, this is a little bit nuanced, okay? So stick with me, okay? uh, Skip down to verse 7. That's where it starts here. Tychicus will tell you about my activities. He's a beloved brother and faithful minister and fellow slave. Son, doulos is how is the Greek word there. Son is just fellow and doulos is slave. It's the same doulos that was, view, that was used up here in ver, uh, four, verse 1, bondservant. That's translated bondservant in my translation. Fellow slave in the Lord. So here we have, uh, Paul's about to mention uh, Onesimus. We have Onesimus is a slave. Tychicus is a slave. Paul's himself is a slave. We have three slaves In verse 9, he actually opts not to call Onesimus a slave. Uh, I think it's because Onesimus was, in fact, a slave, and Paul didn't want people to get confused and think that Onesimus was functioning in this this societal role of a first-century slave to him. He was uh, was more like an equal Christian brother. He wasn't telling Onesimus what to do in the same way that a master would tell a slave what to do. Okay, But down in verse 10, What we see is Aristarchus, my fellow prisoner, greets you. More slave language of prisoner, especially when we see how Paul closes the letter. We have four slaves. In verse 12, Epaphras, who is one of you, a slave of Christ Jesus, greets you. Always struggling. That's his work. He's working and struggling. We got five slaves here. 
In verse 17, there's a special note to the man who's watching over the church. And say to Archippus, verse 17, see that you fulfill the ministry that you have received in the Lord. This is the guy who is watching over the Colossian church in Epaphras' absence. Epaphras was imprisoned in Rome with Paul, and Archippus is watching over it. But see that you fulfill ministry that you have received in the Lord. Lord, we have a reference to master, Lord. Doesn't use Christ like he's been using the whole book. Lord, six slaves. And then in the final verse here, I, Paul, write this greeting with my own hand. Remember my chains. Grace be with you. Remember my chains. Paul frequently mentions his imprisonments in his letter. He's doing it time and time again. He was in prison while he was writing this one. But he never references his imprisonment so vaguely. In fact, the academics who study Paul's letters are confused by this sign-off. It's so vague, they say. It appears as if Paul isn't referencing his physical imprisonment at all, but his spiritual imprisonment to Christ as his slave. And so we see in the back end of this letter that Paul packs it full with six direct references to people who are slaves to Christ. He's reminding his listener that this is how we conceive of Christ. He is our master. And this makes sense of the greater, bigger theme that he's been writing throughout this whole book of Colossians. This huge cosmic plan of of God breaking into this little rebellious, cancerous outpost of creation with Jesus Christ. It only works if, if he's chosen to do it through people who get on board with him as master and execute it as servants and slaves in the world. That's how this whole cosmic plan works. That's how God has chosen for it to work. And, and to view him as master is what we need to do. So we're completely, it's because we're completely dependent upon God's direction on how that plan gets executed, on how it works. That's the choice that every person on earth is faced with. Do you want to be slaves to the world, slaves to Christ? Slaves of the world, slaves of Christ. We've preached that variation of that sermon four, five, six times in the sermon series on Colossians. Have you noticed that? Do you want to be slaves to the world or slaves to Christ? No one truly gets to be free. No one makes that choice. The only choice we really get is who our master is, the world or Christ. So what does that look like, being a slave to Christ? Well, being a slave to Christ, it's not equivalent with that of being uh, without of slavery in the first century or any other slavery for that matter. Don't hear me say that, okay? There's two incredible uh, nuances that we have preserved for us in the scriptures. I'm going to read these to you, okay? You can listen along. The first one's from uh, John chapter 15. This is the night before Jesus was crucified. He's having dinner with his disciples. He says this in John chapter 15, beginning in verse 9. As the Father has loved me, so have I loved you. Abide in my love. If you keep my commandments, you will abide in my love, just as I have kept my Father's commandments and abide in his love. These things I have spoken to you that my joy might be in you and that your joy may be full. This is my commandment, that you love one another as I have loved you. Greater love has no one than this, that someone lay down his life for his friends. You are my friends if you do what I command you. No longer do I call you servants or slaves. 
But the slave does not know what his master is doing. But I have called you friends. For all that I have heard from my father, I have made known to you. So if you're a slave of Jesus, he looks at you and he calls you friend. We have such a kind and caring master in Jesus. He's the most caring and most forgiving master that we could have. This is just a huge confirmation of the prodigal son story, the father welcoming the son back again. Okay? Get this friendship, experience this joy, okay? Now, the second one goes like this, and this is actually in the... um, Paul's letter to Romans. This is the other nuance. The first nuance is a friend nuance. The next one goes like this. Romans chapter 8 begins in verse 12. So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh to live according to the flesh. For you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit are the sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery that language, to fall back into that of fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons and daughters by whom we cry, Abba, Father. See that? After a life of submitting to Jesus, our master and Lord, we become heirs, sons and daughters of the most high God, heirs. Sometimes we do that more perfectly than other times. That's what Paul is alluding here in Romans chapter 8. But still, we are sons and daughters of the Most High. Perhaps it does mean enduring suffering now, but after a life of being a slave, a friend of Jesus, we become heirs of this new heavens, this new earth. Indeed, even now we begin to inherit the kingdom of heaven with joy. But here's the problem with these verses. And the problem really doesn't lie in the verses themselves, um, but in how they're commonly taken, okay? Um, Young American Christians like us, we encounter these passages and conclude that Jesus is on an equal playing field with us. We, We can replace this notion of Jesus as master altogether with a more comfortable and palpable version of Jesus as friend and as brother. Why? Well, it's very easy to understand. This homeboy Jesus is, he doesn't ask much of us. Homeboy Jesus is really easy to get along with. Homeboy Jesus doesn't ask me to do anything hard. Me and homeboy Jesus, we just watch Netflix together. You know? Sometimes people will argue that they emphasize kind of the homeboy Jesus uh, in kind of an effort to kind of make him more palpable to people who are outside the church. People can understand Jesus better this way, they say. But it's not an accurate description of who Jesus is is. Jesus, honestly, I'll tell you this, he has enough friends and he has enough brothers. What he doesn't have are enough servants. He says, the harvest is plenty, but the laborers are few. We emphasize the friendship and the brotherhood of Christ at the cost of him being our master and his mission that he hopes to do through us suffer. When we do that. He's not on an equal playing field with us. Look at how Paul described him back in Colossians chapter 1. Verse 15. He is the image of the invisible God. The firstborn of all creation. For by him all things were created in heaven and on earth. Visible and invisible. Whether thrones or dominions or rulers or authorities. All things were created through him and for him. And he is before all things, and in him all things hold together. He is the head of the body of the church. He is the beginning, 
the firstborn from the dead, that in everything he might be preeminent. It's top-down language, guys. For in him all the fullness of God was pleased to dwell, and through him to reconcile to himself all things, whether on earth or in heaven, making peace by the blood of his cross. He is the powerful second person of the Trinity. We are his servants and slaves. He's our master first. Our friendship and brotherhood with him is true, absolutely. And it's meant to color the fact that he is the perfect, loving, forgiving, hospitable, caring master that we could ever, ever imagine. We have the most joyful form of servanthood, a master who calls us a friend and a brother. And as we saw in those passages, there's still a bunch of obedience packed into them. You probably picked up on that. Obey my commands, love one another. There's still a ton of top-down language, okay? So this leads to a very natural, natural question. Um, is Jesus your functional master or is he your functional friend? Is Jesus your Lord or is he your buddy? Are you his servant Or do you conceive of him as just your equal? You see, because servants are dependent upon their masters to set their priorities in life. Not so much friends. Are are you letting Jesus set your priorities in life? Are you? Or are you letting the world set them for you instead? Are you letting others set them for you? Friends, family, they have a way of trying to set our priorities for us. Right now, Christy and I will just let you into this. We're we're trying to figure out whether to purchase a house or not. Who's setting that priority? Who's setting that priority? Is it the realtors? They just come come knocking and say, hey, you're throwing your rent in the trash. Are they trying to set that priority, priority for us? I don't know. Or is Jesus setting that? Confusing. Because if we hope to see these amazing things that Paul talks about in this letter, okay, if you're a realtor, I'm sorry, you do a great job buying houses and having property is an important part of our society today. I'm not going to take that away from you. Okay. Might might still buy a house. Okay. We hope to see this happen. We hope to see all these things that Paul's coming, talking about come to fruition. It's only going to come through an appropriate understanding as Jesus as our master. Okay. What are those things? Only when we conceive of Jesus as our master can we steer clear of false and oppressive religion. That's chapter two. Only then can racial and socioeconomic uh, divides be completely torn down and done away with. Only then. Only when we conceive of Jesus as our master can we extend and experience the beautiful love and unity between one another. Only then can, uh, will we actually speak uh, wisdom to, the, the, to outsiders. Only then will we truly sacrifice for outsiders. When we conceive of Jesus as our masters, everything is at stake here. The whole mission of God is at stake. It hinges on his people conceiving of him as his master and listening to him. Okay? So I'm just going to tighten the application a little bit. Who's setting the priorities regarding your work? Who's setting those priorities? To be sure, your boss should set a lot of those and you need to listen to your boss about those priorities. But, but there's so much in your work that you can prioritize. Those, we have pretty lenient priority setting from our bosses, I think, outside of big measurables. Who's setting that? Other people, you, Jesus? 
Who's setting the priorities in your relationships? What do you focus on when you're with others? And who determined that? Who's setting the priorities in your finances? That means what do you spend money on? What do you save money for? And who determined that? You? Your friends? Jesus? Who is setting the priorities in your rest? Why do you do what you do on the weekends and for vacations? Who determined that? Who decided that? Now, now no one does this perfectly, and oftentimes we're kind of left in the dark to figure this out for ourselves. Let's acknowledge that. Disclaimer here. But this is something that we can grow in as the people of God. Three, three ways to grow in, okay? Three ways to grow in. The first is, let the, the letter to Philemon, let Colossians 4 be a transfiguration moment for you. What do I mean by that? A transfiguration moment. Um, well, if you remember Jesus' disciples, they had a hard time viewing Jesus as their savior, okay? As their master, too. After all, Peter at one point starts to rebuke Jesus, uh, talk about getting that relationship not just equal, but completely flipped, okay? Peter's like, eh, pull Jesus aside, tell him what he's doing wrong. Gosh, okay. And so what Jesus did was he, with God the Father and Moses and Elijah, they plan a little intervention, okay, for the disciples, okay? And it looks like this. It's in Matthew chapter 17. It's, it's really incredible. Um, Matthew 17. After six days, Jesus took with him Peter and James and John, his brother, and John is the brother of James, and uh, led them up a high mountain by themselves. And he was transfigured before them, and his face shone like the sun, and his clothes became white as light. And behold, there appeared to him Moses and Elijah talking with him. And Peter said to Jesus, Lord, it's good that we're here. If you wish, I will make three tents here, one for you, one for Moses, one for Elijah. He's trying to be a good servant. Poor Peter. He's just trying to be a good servant. And he was still speaking, meaning he was interrupted, when, behold, a bright cloud overshadowed them, and a voice from the cloud said, this is my beloved son, with whom I'm well pleased. Listen to him. Exclamation point. Several translations offer an exclamation point there. Listen to him. Read the Gospels. Let Jesus speak to you from the Gospels. Pray and wait. Let Jesus speak to you in your prayer life. Joshua shared a sermon about that a couple weeks ago. Let Jesus speak to you from your prayer life. Go to your cohort members and ask them this question. That is your fellow slaves in Christ. Ask them this question. What do you think Jesus wants me to do? What do you think Jesus wants me to do? Begin to give Jesus space to speak through his word, through prayer, and through his people. And when he does... Listen to him. Transfiguration moment. The second way is to do what we preached on last week, actually, is to pray for doors to be open to declare the mystery of Christ with those who do not know him. That is the main thrust of what the servants of Jesus Christ have been preoccupied with for 2,000 years now, and it's not going to change. That's the second way. Trying to push into that. Um, my cohort, this last week, we were unpacking Dave's sermon. We concluded that we should all have five people who we're praying for on a daily basis. That God would open door to be able, doors to be able to talk to Jesus with them. Five people. And one thing that we've found in this little experiment in the course of a week is that when you start doing it for five, all of a sudden that list grows to 10 and 15. It just happens. And then God will respond by opening doors for that to happen. The third way uh, we found, the third way that we can begin to apply this 
is to look at the example of Epaphras in these final verses because in him we see the labor of a servant of God. Verse 12, he's a servant of Jesus Christ. He, he greets you always struggling, manual labor term, on your behalf in his prayers that you may stand mature and fully assured in all the will of God. For I bear him witness that he has worked hard, more manual labor for you and for those in Laodicea. What is this working that he's doing? He's working that uh, the other people of God, he's asking that God would do it because he can't do it himself because he's in prison. He's asking that God would help them stand mature, fully assured in the will of God. And so part of what it means to begin to conceive and work as a servant of Christ is to encourage one another in our servanthood. Two parts to that. When you see someone who's just being a great servant of the Lord, you tell them, you're doing a great job. I see you sacrificing so much for Jesus and his mission in the world. Great job. Keep going. How can I help you? How can I support you? The other way is it means to ask questions. Hey, I see you're up to this. You're kind of prioritizing this over here in your life. Who's, who's kind of setting that priority? Is, is this set by, um, by, by, by you, other people setting those priorities? Is this priority being set by Jesus? How can I help you find the will of Christ in this world? There's no greater question you can help someone else figure out. Well, those are the three ways. Those are the three ways that we can begin to apply this in our lives, to apply this uh, viewing Jesus as our master, okay? Oh, that we would be known as slaves of this kind, our sacrificial Lord, that we would live up to our name as Christians. Little Christ, that's what Christians mean in the world. Extending forgiveness, sacrificial care that costs us something towards our fellow man, fellow woman in the world. And by so doing, participate with this presence of God that's in breaking our little rebellious outpost. Bringing all things into subjugation of his love and his rule. Okay? Let's pray. Father, we, um, we come before you as your people asking for your, your, your help. Lord, right now, I just want to um, ask your spirit that, that he would recall all the ways in our lives that we have trusted you as our master, that we have taken leaps of faith and steps of faith, sacrificially loving for others, giving up things for you, and how you have brought us so much life as a result of it, because you're our friend, our brother. And in those ways, we began to inherit the kingdom of God even now. God, I pray for my friends who are here that wouldn't call themselves Christians yet. God, would you begin to, to work on their hearts to, to help them continue to considering to, to consider Jesus? We, we praise you that you have begun their consideration of Jesus and and may they have gotten a fresher picture of what it means to follow you, a beautiful picture to be welcomed back in the arms, forgiving and caring arms of Christ. So we pray that you would take this and use it to send your mission forward into this world today. Amen.